Morning. Okay, uh, we are still in the book of James. We're in our fifth week in our new series, which is our faith series, uh, and we're covering the entire letter of James. This is one of my favorite books. I say that on every book, but I'm legit. This is one of my favorite books. Um, but I have to do this brief recap very briefly because we have a lot to cover. I'm going to be honest, we probably won't finish, but we're going to give it a shot. Okay, James was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, and he wrote this letter to the Jews who had believed who were scattered throughout uh, Palestine, uh, and the Jews that he wrote to were being heavily persecuted for that faith. So he basically wrote this uh, just to encourage them to stand firm under that persecution. Now, today we're going to look at one of the most misunderstood passages in all of James' letter, in all the chapters of this letter. It's just one of the most misunderstood. Uh, we're going to discuss what James teaches his readers about a live and dead faith. Okay, alive and dead faith. And to get a clear understanding of these verses, there's, there are uh, some specific things I want to talk about just to uh, give you some things that are pretty vital to remember, okay, that'll help you with the interpretation of this. First, this was written to believers, and I'm going to tell you that time and time again, specifically to Jewish believers around Palestine. So everything James wrote in these letters is to be interpreted as such, written to believers. We can't you know, try to make this talking to unbelievers or anything like that. This is talking to Jewish believers. Uh, the second thing that's important is the word save, saved, or salvation. They don't always refer to eternal life. Okay, it's very important you understand that. They don't always refer to eternal life. Uh, James is writing to believers. They already have eternal life. So rarely are they going to be referring to that uh, here. Now, the third thing is the word dead you're going to see throughout uh, this, this chapter, and it's used as a modifier in verses 14 through 26, and it is not referring to physical death, okay? And we'll cover that as we get moving on. I'm just kind of getting you ahead of, the, ahead of the game a little bit here. Uh, now, uh, in context, the word dead we're going to be looking at today is more synonymous with uh, ineffective or dormant, okay? So James will teach uh, how our faith is only effective when we apply it to our lives, Right? So I titled this message, Faith That's Working, and the easiest way to know that your faith is working is to evaluate your life. And the simplest way to evaluate your life, honestly, is just to see how you spend your time, treasure, and talent, and that will reveal a lot about your faith. Okay, let's jump right in. Now, before we look at these verses, remember the context of what James has been saying. Okay, we've got to remember the context. The context has been how to stand firm amidst trials, temptations, and persecutions. That's the context that we've been following the whole book, Right? Now, James is still following that same contextual line of reasoning as we go into verses 14 through 26. We can't lose that context or we lose the interpretation. Uh, and since we know believers today still face all these things, it's very important we understand verses 14 through 26. They're very important. So James opens this section by taking on a fundamental issue that just needed to be dealt with. And it still does, to be honest with you. And I think he does a great job here. So let's look at 2.14, James 2.14. He says, what use is it, my what? Brethren. brethren. He's going to say that a lot to remind you who he's talking to. So what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith what? Save him. Save him. Okay. Now, most Bible teachers seem to toe the party line when they're teaching this section, especially verses 14 through 26. Because the easiest way to teach verses 14 through 26 is to say that only genuine faith produces godly works, okay? Unfortunately, that interpretation may be the easiest, but it's not at all accurate. It's not what it's trying to say here. And I'm not saying that godly uh, works don't come from genuine faith, but that's not what it's saying. There's actually no Greek word used in this book for genuine faith. It doesn't exist. Just faith, okay? And now there are two kinds of faith 
that he's going to be discussing in this book, in this, uh, these verses, and that's dead faith and alive faith. Really, really important. So James was addressing this common issue that still exists even today. He was addressing the issue of what does effective faith or living faith actually look like? Because sometimes I think we lose it. Sometimes I don't think we, we actually know what that means. Does it mean going to church every week? No. I mean, does it mean that you, you, know, you, you do your devotions every morning? Not necessarily. What does effective faith or living faith actually look like? Basically, said, he said, if a believer's faith doesn't produce good works, what good is it? That's how he starts this off. I mean, you talk about a tough way to start it off. He's saying, if you say you have faith and it's not doing anything, what good is that faith to you? That's what he's starting off with. All right, and here's where the first point of contention comes in, where a lot of, of theologians struggle, and this is where a lot of the battles take place. All right, here he says, will that faith save him? Okay, immediately people's minds go to salvation. Immediately, salvation from hell or eternal life, right? But that's not what he's talking about. The word saved here is, uh, in verse 14, is the Greek word sozo. Sozo. Okay, and it literally means to rescue, heal, or deliver. To rescue, to heal, or deliver. Now remember, it's only, now sozo can refer, can, uh, refer to eternal deliverance, but when it does, it's accompanied by a modifier that says it's eternal. Okay, it will say it's eternal. A lot of times I think we try to read the Bible too mystically. It's a very well-written book. You know, all the books in it are very well-written. It's a collection of well-written books. And if you just pay attention, it will tell you what it means, okay? So it only means eternal life when it's modified by eternal life. So knowing that, the next logical question is, save, he says, can that faith save him? Save, heal, or deliver him? We know that's what it means. From what? What are they being saved from? Now, I'm not going to argue the fact that these verses are teaching that works are a part of some salvation. There's some part of salvation that, that works are a part of. But... What kind of salvation do these verses teach that works are a part of? That's the question, okay? Again, not every mention of salvation is talking about eternal salvation, okay? Now, we saw that by the definition. So we've already clarified that he's not talking about eternal life here. You notice I keep repeating that? That's because I want you to realize that it's not talking about eternal life. It's not talking about regeneration. The Bible is very clear that salvation by faith alone in Christ alone is all there is. There is nothing else. It can never be by works. Work can never be affiliated with eternal life, ever. It cannot be. If you are interpreting any passage in the Bible to say that you cannot have eternal life unless you physically, as a person, do a work, you are interpreting it incorrectly. And I'll give you some verses. One you knew I was going to give you, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I love how he says that because he's saying it's like a gift under the Christmas tree. You didn't do anything for that. It's just there. It is a gift of God. Not what? As a result of work so that no one may boast. And we would. Right? Listen to this. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. What? Not according, Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us. Listen to that, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, here's another one I love, Romans 3.28. For we maintain what? Wow, that, I got you a long one there, didn't I? Okay, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I think I've proved my point, okay? That works can have nothing to do 
with eternal life. So we know that's not in play here. So what salvation was James talking about when he said, can that faith save him? You know, as previously stated, he's writing to people who already have eternal life. But he's also writing to people who are being heavily persecuted. Heavily persecuted. He's talking to people who are, are being persecuted by the Jews, being persecuted by the pagans, being persecuted uh, by the Romans. They are being heavily persecuted. They're being tempted to walk away from their faith. They're being tried. It is a difficult time for these believing Jews. It's a very, very different time, difficult time. And they all desperately wanted to be delivered from those trials and struggles. And you can get that. Have you ever been going through a trial that lasts quite a while? And after a while, do you find yourself being kind of a baby? And saying, God, please let this be over. Anybody ever do that? Why don't you put this on my neighbor? He's not as good as me, you know? Things like that. You all get pettish. I mean, we get there. Sometimes we're just dying to be delivered from difficult circumstances. And they were no, uh, no exception. So the salvation or the sozo, the deliverance he mentioned, is from those trials and struggles. He's saying faith True faith will deliver you from trials and struggles, but a faith that doesn't work, that, a faith that doesn't inspire you enough to do something is not powerful enough to deliver you from your struggles. And sadly, at this point, some of them had already chose to stop allowing their faith to inspire them to action because they just wanted to blend into the crowd. They were tired of being picked on, so they, some of them had started becoming ineffective. So their faith stopped working, and it became dormant or ineffective, Right? Now, when a believer's faith becomes dormant and, and ineffective, it's not pleasing to God. God doesn't just say, oh, well, I got a bunch of other ones. That's not what he says. He wants the best for each one of us, and when we become dormant in our faith, it's not pleasing to him. Especially when you think of all that Jesus endured on the cross for us, shouldn't we at least have active faith? A faith that will act in his, in his behalf? I just don't understand that. And make no mistake, there are always going to be consequences for having dormant faith. I think people get the mindset that if I do nothing, good or bad, how can I get in trouble? If I just sit here and just be a pew filler and do nothing else, how can I get in trouble? But listen, there are consequences for every decision. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Listen, if you sow laziness, don't expect to get much. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. So James asked if faith without works could save someone, not only from the trials and the difficulties they're going through, but could it save them from the consequences of being ineffective, being inactive in their faith? Like those people I told you about that had just given up. He's saying, you don't even have the faith to save you from the consequences of your sin. That's what he was talking about here. He's saying, listen, if you want to be delivered from whether it be the consequences of your sin or if you want to be delivered from, you know, the persecution and all the trials, there's something you do have to do. There is a work that is required for you to be delivered or saved from those difficult times. There is an action, and that action is allowing your faith to make you confident enough to go out and serve Christ. No matter how difficult, no matter how you know, hateful the people are against you, no matter how many critics you have, that kind of faith is what will deliver you from the persecution, from the consequences of sin. That's what he was talking about being delivered here, right? Now, in verses 15 through 17 is where it starts to get, a little, get even a little more hairy. Because James now calls dormant or inactive faith dead for the first time. He calls it dead faith. Okay? So in verses 15 through 17, he illustrates the concept that obedience to God brings deliverance. Look at this, starting in verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, <clears throat> and one of you says to them, Go in peace, 
be warmed and be filled. And yet, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is what? Dead being by itself. Okay, that's very, very important. Can just knowing the truth is what he's saying here. Can just knowing the truth about God's word save us from the consequences uh, of, and the struggles that's going on in our lives? Can it happen? In other words, can just knowing God's word and not applying it deliver you? And the answer is absolutely not. Of course not. James addressed that last week. Remember with the hearers and doers? He said, listen, the hearers know and understand what it says. They just choose not to do anything about it. But he says the ones who are doers, they hear the word, they understand it, and they apply it, and they are justified and they are blessed. He already discussed that. We know that's not what he's teaching, right? So James was illustrating that, and he was trying to make a comparison, uh, like a word picture or a story picture that they could see in their mind. So he compares inactive faith to a wealthy believer who meets another believer who's naked and hungry and in desperate need. And when he sees him, Instead of helping him, and he definitely has the means to help him, he does the religious thing. Go, be warmed, and be filled. Doesn't that sound so spiritual? Go, be warmed, and be filled. But he didn't do anything to help him accomplish that. Have you ever had someone come up to you, and they, you can tell they're reaching out, they're needing you. And you say, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll pray about that, and walk away. It's kind of the same thing. You know what I mean? It's not that I'm saying it's wrong to pray for people, but sometimes people are reaching out to you, and you have the means to sit down and be a comfort to them. This is what he did. He basically just said, hey, yeah, go on, you know, uh, be warmed and be filled. I mean, it was, it was just completely empty religious encouragement. It was hollow. There was nothing there. His faith was doing nothing but giving hollow, empty words. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. I mean, what good is that? Yeah, he, he uses those big spiritual hollow words and the guy that he ran into, despite him having the means to help him, walks away from him in the same condition, still hungry, still naked, still in need. He didn't do anything. Those words that he used to try to comfort or encourage him were worthless. They did nothing. They didn't help anybody. And so James is saying that's the same thing with faith that doesn't work. If you have faith and it doesn't inspire you to work, it's also worthless. Now I can just imagine this guy probably, you know, excused his selfish behavior. We do that whenever we don't want to do something God's asking us to do. We look for excuses as to why we're right and he's wrong, right? So I could imagine this guy used some flawed worldly logic, like, well, I saw him and I told him I hope he's warmed and I hope he's filled, but you know God helps those that help themselves. How many people have ever heard that? How many people realize that is not in the Bible? Good. It is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's not only unscriptural, it is untrue. The truth is, God only helps those who cannot help themselves because that's all of us. That's the only kind of people he helps. You can't be like Christ only helping people who have the means to help themselves. If you want to be like Christ, you help people who cannot help themselves. You show them grace and mercy. Grace means giving them something they don't deserve. That's what God did for you. That's what we're supposed to do for them. And this is what James was trying to say. You're never more like God than when you help those who can't help themselves. It's really, really important, right? Remember, God blesses every one of us with very special things we can do, ways we can use our time, treasure, and talent to serve Him. But here's the thing. If you don't use it, remember, the same God who gave it to you can take it from you, right? This is what he's trying to say. It's really important. 
Now, likewise, having faith that doesn't inspire and produce godly action, it's just as fruitless, this is what James is saying, as a guy who tells someone who needs help, I hope everything works out for you. That's basically what he's saying. So now it's really important. Now, this is where James first calls uh, faith uh, that doesn't produce works dead. Dead faith means faith that doesn't produce good or godly works for Jesus. All right, now there are a lot of people who equate dead faith with being an unbeliever. Some people just can't admit that there are Christian people who are going to heaven who have dead faith, meaning faith that doesn't work, doesn't do works for God. It's hard for some people to accept that, but the fact is, it is true, right? The, those same believers think that this has to be talking to only unbelievers because no believer could have dead faith. Uh, some say that, that dead faith means that they're, uh, they lost their salvation, which is totally ridiculous and impossible. I don't even like spending time talking about that. Uh, we're reminded all the time that we have eternal life. Je- John 6, 47, I'm just going to throw a bone out here. It says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has what? Eternal life. I don't even know why that's a discussion. You know what I mean? You can tell it's a pet peeve of mine. I have many. That's a big one. Uh, because, I mean, what's to discuss? I mean, if you believe, you have eternal life. What does eternal mean? It means eternal. It means if, he, if there was conditions, Jesus would have had to have said here, I say to you, he who believes has conditional life depending on what he does, whether he can keep it. He didn't say that. He says eternal life. I'm moving on. Anyway, now, others say that dead faith in this situation proves that the person never was saved in the first place. That's got a really special theological term for that. It's called lordship salvation, and it is a bunch of bunk. That's what it is. It's a bunch of bunk. All right? And the reason they say that is they don't want to deal with the fact that there are believers who get themselves in a situation where their faith is not working anymore for one reason or another. Right? So that, that argument has no merit whatsoever. Oh, well, see, he's saying that you know, only real believers do work. That's not what he's saying. It has nothing to do with that. How many times does he have to call them brother and sister and brethren for us to realize he's talking to believers? You know, and I think James repeated that a bunch because he knew we'd fight against it. He knew that we don't like to admit things like uh, Christians can make mistakes. So if that has already been debunked. He calls them brother, brother and sisters. I can't tell you how many times throughout this book. So this is written to believers. That's not what it's talking about. Now the word dead is used metaphorically to describe believers all over the Bible. It's not something that just James does. See, and that's why I don't understand why people freak out so much when they see this. Oh, it has to mean somebody who's lost their salvation, or it has to mean somebody who proves they weren't saved, because it wouldn't say dead. It wouldn't put dead with a believer. (laughs) That's all over the Bible, everywhere. Look, I'm just going to name a few. Okay, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 10. If Christ is in you, are we talking to believers? Okay, if Christ is in you, though the body is what? Dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Okay, so in Romans 8, Paul wasn't saying that all who believe in Christ are just physically dead. They're just going to drop dead when they believe. That's not what he was saying. He was saying that, that even though our bodies are imperfect and temporary, the spirit we got from God when we believed is eternal. That's what he was saying. Right, so it was metaphorical. Here, look at this in uh, Romans 7, 9. He says, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Okay, one of my favorite verses. Now, what Paul was saying here, he wasn't saying that the moment he understood the law and it revealed his sin to him, he fell dead. Or he wouldn't be able to, to write this. 
if he were dead. You know what I mean? That's, that, that's not what it means. He didn't just drop over dead. What does that mean? Until Paul reached a certain age, he didn't know about or understand sin. Listen, there's, everybody asks me what the age of accountability is. How many people discuss that in their life? Age of accountability. Two of us. You guys need more spiritual conversations. Anyway, people always ask, at what age is someone accountable for their sin? Well, listen, when you know it, when you understand it, it can be different ages. Paul was saying, I was alive without the law, meaning I didn't even understand what sin had done to me. I didn't know the repercussions of sin in my life. I didn't get it. But the moment that I saw in the law that my sin separated me from God, at that moment, I spiritually died. At that moment, I realized that my sin had kept me separate from God. That's what it was talking about there. It was metaphorically. Now, it shouldn't be that strange to us because we still use death and dead metaphorically uh, or descriptively rather than literally. How about this one? Uh, my mower's out of gas. It's dead. Does that mean your mower needs to be buried somewhere? No. It's just not active right now. You follow me? Okay, or this one. I caught him dead to rights. I don't even know what that means. But I doubt it means you found him dead, right? You know, oh, it's a corpse, dead to rights. I don't think that's what he's talking about. How about this? Oh, have you seen her? She's a dead ringer for her sister. Does that mean, I just saw this dead chick that looks just like you. No, these are all metaphorical, okay? All of them. Uh, none of them are talking about literal death. So it's not that strange to see to see James use death in a metaphorical fashion, trying to teach what faith looks like when it's not active, okay? So you have to be really careful here. Now, here's the problem I think we have when people interpret this, and I'm going to get a little theological here, so take notes if you can, but we have to be careful to not try to use the scriptures to support what we already believe. Have you ever known somebody that does that? They, they look around the Bible, they don't look for context. They look for something that sounds like it supports what they believe, and then they believe it because it agrees with them. We've got to be really careful. When we use the scriptures that way, it's a method of study called eisegesis. Eisegesis. Okay, and it's not J-E-S-U-S, -S, just so you know. It's E-I-S-G-E-S-I-S. -S -S. Eisegesis, and I'm going to give you the actual definition, so be ready to be bored. You ready? Eisegesis is the process of interpreting text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. It's commonly referred to as reading into the text. You ever hear that? Reading into the text. It's often done to prove a pre-held point of concern and to provide confirmation bias corresponding with the pre-held interpretation and any agenda supported by it. Everybody remember that? I'll, I'll, there'll be a test. Let, let me say that the quick way. Okay, there's a quick way to say that. Eisegesis means reading the scriptures, trying to make them support what you already believe. Reading them with a predisposed belief that you are not going to get rid of, so you're finding, trying to look for things to support it in the scriptures. And we've all met people who do that. I mean, who use the Bible and find ways to twist the scriptures to support their own personal beliefs and or agendas. Listen, I've heard people try to twi twist the Bible to, to, to say racism is okay. When someone told me that, I got really angry. I'm not going to tell you what I said to him because I don't think it was really godly. Then if you ever wanted to know the fact that your pastor sins, you should have been involved in that conversation. It was obvious we were both sinners saved by grace at that point. He literally tried to use the Bible to say that being a racist was okay. The discussion had something to do with me calling him ignorant and a redneck. But anyway, listen. All right, eisegesis is how cults are started. Did you know that? That's how cults are started. 
They twist God's word to meet someone's agenda. That's how cults begin. So we've got to be very careful when we're interpreting difficult passages not to do that. So next, James uh, explained his point uh, by using something known as an imaginary objector. Okay, an imaginary objector. And an imaginary objector is just a, a hypothetical person used to illustrate someone's point. All right? And using imaginary objectors at that time was really, really common in, in literature, so that's why he employed that method. Right? Now, we still do it today, and I'm going to help you understand this before we get into this passage of Scripture. But um, we still use that kind of imaginary objector today when we say things like, well, you know what they say. Anybody ever hear someone say that? Who are they? Who, who are, that's what I always ask them. Well, you know what they say. Who's they before you go on? Because I don't know what they say if I don't know who they is. Right? How am I going to know what they say? Right? And some of the craziest stuff, they use these imaginary objectors to try to get us to believe some of the craziest stuff. Right? And let me give you some examples. My mom used to say, you know, they say drinking coffee stunts your growth. My mother was 5'9". That's a pretty tall woman. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident it didn't stunt her growth. The woman might as well have had an IV pulled around with her with coffee in it. It did not stunt her growth, but they say it does. Imaginary objector. They don't tell you who that is. They say, right? Uh, here's another one. They say, well, you know, they say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I love apples, and I've been to the doctor so many times we became friends, and I've gone on missions with him. So the apple did not keep the doctor away. It kind of drew him into my life. Just saying. Here's one I heard. It's kind of gross, but this is my last one. I'll finish with this because I don't want to get carried away. I think that's impossible right now, but I think I'm going to tell you this. I had somebody tell me one time because they had been listening to some Hindu, you know, spiritual teacher or whatever. He said, you know, he lived to be 120. Why? Well, they say that you can live longer if you drink your own urine every day. And I'm like, I don't know who they is, but if they're right, just let me die. I'm not doing that. All right, so listen, we use the imaginary objector all the time, okay? And James is using an imaginary objector. Generally, it's based on an, a discussion he's had with somebody else, and he doesn't want to use their name, okay? So let's look at this, James 2, 18 through 20. But some may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, now, I think this is really talking about, remember the Jews were heavily persecuting them, and the Jews did all these works of the law to look righteous. There was no faith behind it, really, at all. They just wanted to look righteous. So imagine a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, telling a young believer who doesn't know how to work for Christ yet, and he's not doing the things the Jews think are right, and he says, yeah, well, you show me your faith with this Jesus guy by your works that are not in the law, and I'll do the things in the law to prove my faith. Okay, so... That's probably what's going on here. Verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one? This is James speaking. You do well. The demons also believe uh, and shudder. That's kind of a dig. Verse 20, But are you willing to recognize you what? You foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Okay, now let me explain this. Anybody lost? Okay, good. Let's make sure you stay with me. Now, here's where most people get off the rails right here. Meaning, here's where they get confused, usually right here, theologically speaking. Some Bible scholars, again, will say that this is saying only genuine faith, which is not a word in that passage, only genuine faith produces good works, right? 
So when someone has dead faith, they're just proving they were never saved. That is incorrect. Now, there's other scholars who believe that dead faith refers to someone who lost their salvation, like I said earlier, right? Uh, But we know that's not true. The imaginary objector James mentioned here called those who believe what was said in verse 18 and 19, he calls them fools. He's saying neither one of you are right. I've heard people use this passage for years to, you know, uphold their belief that, that their works proves they're saved. And he's saying you're both wrong. Both theories are wrong. As a matter of fact, you're foolish for believing that. All right, that's what he was telling them. Because basically he's looking at the Jew and he's saying, the works you're doing have nothing to do with Jesus. They're about you looking righteous to your Jew friends, to the people in the Sanhedrin Council, the people in the synagogue. The works that you say is proving your faith is proving nothing but your self-righteousness. That's what it's proving. That's why he's a fool. And the other one's a fool is because he has believed and isn't doing a dang thing. So when they have that argument, they both feel like they ought to point the, the objector here, the imaginary objector, says you're both wrong and you're both fools. The imaginary objector is kind of mean because I think this was James being mean without them saying James was mean. He called them both foolish, right? And then he says something kind of mocking. He says, don't you know that the demons believe and shudder? That, that was a dig. That was definitely a dig because both uh, uses of believe in verse 19 come from the same Greek word, pistuo. Now, here's what that means. To think something to be true. To think something to be true. Right? So, both parties had a form of belief, but whatever faith they had was not inspiring godly works for Christ. That's what he was trying to tell him, Right? And James was saying believing doesn't always translate into, into good works because the demons have that kind of faith. The demons believe that God is real. They're terrified of him, but it's not causing them to do good works, is it? So he kind of threw this dig in Adam, right? And both believers uh, believe that God is the giver of eternal life, but neither one of them was doing the right things with it. So that's why they were called foolish. Now, in contrast, a live faith is always accompanied by good works. Okay, now let me explain that. Dead faith is faith that's dormant. Now, before you get too judgmental, there are times and different reasons that we allow our faith to go dead go dormant maybe you get your feelings hurt at church and so for some reason you go home and put your diaper on right and your onesie and cry about it for a month or two until god jerks the rug out from underneath you and tells you to quit being a baby and get back to church right that's one reason uh i've known people who have let their faith go dormant because they were uh betrayed by a pastor or they were betrayed by a christian friend or there's so many reasons people can say that or they they have a loss they've lost a loved one and, you know, they never give God credit when good things happen, but they're quick to blame him when bad things happen. There's a lot of reasons that our faith can go dead or can go inactive, but when our faith is active and we are serving God because we love God, when we are entrenched in our faith and we are surrendering our life to the sovereignty of God, you can't help but do good works. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. I don't know if you noticed when, when you first got saved that that. All of a sudden, you have a different feeling towards people. You know, you want to help people. Before, if I saw somebody in need, I was like, hmm, stinks. Sad for you. What time's the game on? That was me. Right? And after I got saved, I was like, I can't leave. I got to say, I got to help him. There's something inside me said, you know what? 
God gave me what I didn't deserve. Who am I to walk away from them? You see what I mean? When you really surrender to God and to his sovereignty, you will have a living and active faith. You are going to have it. Okay, and that's what James is trying to say here. If you don't, something's wrong. Living or active faith will do good works because it can't help but do good works. It's in love with God. And when you're in love with God, you do good things. Remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? Remember that? Some of you are going, nope. Remember when you first fell in love with your spouse, you always wanted to buy them stuff and bring them stuff, right? And you dressed up nice for them and stuff. Now you've been married 20 years and you're wearing flannel and you tell them, you want something, go get it yourself. No, I'm just kidding. But you just remember that, that feeling when you first got saved, you just want to do everything you could for them. That's what living an active faith looks like when you're in love with God. It wants to do things for God. Now, the last thing here, James cites two examples that prove the one that the one that submits to God has active faith. And they're big ones. We're going to actually talk more about these next week because I do not have time. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Okay. Is this talking about eternal life? No. He's talking to Abraham for crying out loud. All right. 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scriptures was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I've actually had people pull that one verse out to prove that you had to work to remain saved. And I'm like, yeah, that would be great if there weren't a lot of verses before and after it, right? Verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. I love that, that last statement. He's saying when the body, when the spirit leaves the body, you can put it on a machine, you can force that body to breathe. You can keep fluids pumping in and out of that body, but if the spirit has left it, it's dead. I know that's pretty morbid, but I've told my wife, don't leave me like that. You know, if something happens to me, let me go to Jesus. Don't sit there and pay bills on an old dead carcass. You know what I mean? Let me go. He's saying when the spirit leaves the body, it's dead. Listen, when our faith doesn't work, isn't doing godly things, it's dead means it's inactive and it's dormant and that is a dangerous situation to be into so we're going to pick up there next week because i want to talk we're going to look at the stories of abraham and isaac and we're going to look at the story of rahab the harlot and uh, we're going to pull this section back together and make this all come together so you can see how the whole picture he was trying to paint is just a beautiful uh piece of artwork so we're going to go ahead and stop there i'm asking you to please bow your heads if this is your first time we always like to give an invitation a brief one. If you're not sure where you stand, listen. I just want to pray for you. Or maybe you just need prayer. I, it's not any of my business. I just want to pray for those who want it. Make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. I really do. I don't just say that. I'm not like the guy walking by saying, be warmed and be filled. I will pray for you. Bless those people. This is, if you're, bless those people. If you're watching online, listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of dead faith going around. Sometimes when you look at the body of Christ as a whole, it kind of looks like a graveyard when it comes to dead faith. Because we're fighting and bickering and arguing and being, uh, you know, disunified. When that's the polar opposite of why we're here. It's time that we turn our faith 
back into the living faith it was supposed to be. Not just do our devotions and hang out with our Christian buddies. Share the love of God that gave you eternal life and changed you from the inside out. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the offer of eternal life. We thank you that it's not by works because we've already proven we can't be good enough. We couldn't be good enough in the garden. We couldn't be good enough with the law. And we can't be good enough apart from you. Thank you for making a way for us to have eternal life simply by believing in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and trusting it for ourselves. And if there's someone here who doesn't know you're watching or listening, God, I just pray whatever's holding them back, just remove it. Remind them that you, you know who they are. You know the mistakes they've made. You know the reputation, and you died for them anyway. So if they can put that aside and believe, you will give them eternal life. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. And God, for those of us who are believers, let us wake up our faith. Let us revive the faith that has died in so many of us. We want our faith to be alive and active. We want people to hear you and see you when they hear us and see us. Use us, God. Bring our faith back to life. We just thank you, God, for everything you do. We pray that you would keep us safe as we leave here. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.